Hey, this is Nick Beard from Circus Survive, and you're listening to The New Scene. You were just here. I was not. Yeah, you were. You were on my lap five minutes ago. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. Now you're going on Santa's list, and you're getting nothing. Fuck you, Santa. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. This is Keith. And Tommy. And we're back with the goods, ready to deliver once again. And folks, tonight on the show, Greg Thomas of End. We're very excited about this. We love End. We love Silver Bullet Studios. We love Misery Signals. We love Shai Halud. And Greg has been involved with all of these. And we're going to talk about it all. I'm very excited. Tommy, I went back and listened to the whole end discography again this week. And boy, they are so good. They are really, really good. (laughs) Yeah. Like for this this new crop of metalcore bands with that really dropsy metallic sound and the the vicious breakdowns, you know, like knocked loose vein, all that stuff. They're right up there. Yeah, I actually kind of see them in a little bit of a different way, though. Um... Explain. So I when I think of like knock loose, I think of knock loose and I like them a lot. And I don't say this as like a kind of diminishing what they do. I see a lot of knock loose as some of the songs are structured around. They're just setups for the breakdown. <laughs> Does that I mean, I might be completely wrong with that, but I feel like a lot of it's le- just leading to that. And they even kind of tease what the breakdown is going to be earlier in the song. Um, whereas end reminds me of more just just straightforward hardcore that just so happens to have really heavy breakdowns i really like what they're doing and greg is involved with a lot so i'm looking forward to talking to him uh let's see so what's going on oh last week i went to a show tommy and guess who i met who i met joe grillo of garrison who's actually been on our show folks He was on episode 78 of our podcast, so check it out. You'll want to hear that. But he sings for a new band called Her Head's on Fire, and I have gone to the gig, Tommy. How I I know things are rapidly closing down in New York City. How how was the atmosphere going into that show? It was fine because this was before things were rapidly closing down. Okay. So I went to the show, and Her Head's on Fire were great. They're a kind of post-hardcore... Uh, slightly emo-tinged rock and roll type band. I really like... Very melodic from the tracks I heard. Really cool cool stuff, though. Yeah, they have a split out with Jay Robbins right now, and they've got a song on that. So check that out, folks, if you haven't. It's on Spotify now, and of course, you can purchase it. Great band, great band. And it was nice to meet Joe in person, because we talked to him on the show, and he's got good style, Tommy. Do Do you ever see a man, Tommy, and think... Hey, I like the way that person presents themselves. I thought I thought he was very well put together as well. Yeah, I, there's a principal at my school that as soon as I see him turn the corner, I'm like, dang, this dude dresses really nice. Yeah, <laughs> everything about like just uh from head to toe, like from their haircut to the, their choice of shoes. I go, that's really you, you seem like a very uh put together person. Yes. Yeah. I always appreciate that. I always appreciate when you can tell people have put some effort into how they look. 
I do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you pick out what Costco pants you're going to wear and what hat and stuff, right? I only have one hat. Actually, I have, to, I have two hats. It's the same hat. Oh, oh, you have two of the same hat. I see. Yeah. Well, what else is going on? Oh, uh, I have. I'm detoxing from Twitch and social media and all this stuff for a minute. So uh, more on that later. But during that detox, I've managed to catch up on some TV and I watched Juice World Into the Abyss, a new HBO documentary about Juice World. Tommy, now this thing was pretty wild. The first hour and a half, I would say, is just footage of him on tour. You know, his whole career was basically two years. Can you believe that? No, I would think it's longer than that. He seemed like he was around for a long time. Because, like, in my first, the first time I really heard of him was Lucid Dreams. And that seems way, that seems like five years, six years ago. 2017. Well, of course, there was much leading up to Lucid Dreams, but his mainstream success was two years, Tommy. That's insane. It seems longer than that, for sure. You're yeah. right. I, I couldn't believe it. And the documentary is just, he had a full-time camera person with him at all times. So I would say the first hour, hour and a half of the documentary is just footage of him on tour and shows and hanging out and recording and all that stuff. Though so I would say the last half hour is the more traditional documentary style where they're interviewing people and they're giving their thoughts. And there's some cool moments like, a lot of that stuff he came up with freestyle just off the top of his head that he was apparently a virtuoso at that. And there's a moment where they're showing him write the song fast. Oh, I love that song. That's like yeah. my favorite one. Yeah. And I, the entire th- the th- documentary is over two hours, I think. But the whole thing is worth watching just for that moment. There's a guy playing an acoustic guitar and he sings fast. And there's yeah. some extra verses and stuff at the end that I, I guess they ended up cutting. but. I've always heard that about, uh, there's a couple people, Big L, uh, Lil Wayne, and uh, Notorious B.I.G. They never run anything down. Yeah, which is unbelievable. But I guess the more you're working out that muscle, the better you get. And man, it's just kind of sad because they show some pretty rampant drug use as well. And at one point, he swallows six Perk 30s at once, which is just... A lot. And I can't believe he was only 21 years old and just so addicted and so unhappy. And I kind of thought what you said, Tommy, there, there's a new album too, Fighting Demons, and I listened to it. And uh, I, di- <laughs> I feel bad saying this because he's not with us anymore, but I didn't really like it because it every song is the same. It's just he's super depressed. He's going to die. He's on drugs. Everything is really horrible, every single song. And I, I just feel so bad for the guy. I'm like, I can't listen to this. Like, I want to help him. I want to, you know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. I guess, I guess I've explored all I need to f- with the music. Real quick, uh, when you say like rampant drug use, like what is his like, uh, beside, besides like perks and stuff like that, what's his uh, poison? Lean. So, dude, that's one of those things that I think people think is like, oh, it's just like, you know, it's Sprite mixed with like cough medicine. So it kind of gets you high. It's like it's straight codeine. Like, yeah. you, it, it's fucking you are just taking a fucking opiate. Like, let's not fucking sugarcoat that. Like, that's why they call it lean is people literally start to kind of like nod out like fucking dope high. Right. Like, it, it's, a, yeah. it's a really scary thing because. You see people that kind of like got into this from like that kind of like Houston chopped and screwed like that was part of this culture. And then it's like 
Now you have people that are like full blown addicts. Like, yeah, they, and they graduate to heroin and it's, it's just another entryway into all of that. And some of the people they interview that he knew are pretty fried too. <laughs> like they're interviewing them. They're like, yeah, man, he had some problems. And I'm like, oh, these poor kids. <laughs> <sighs> that's devastating to see that. Like when you see somebody that's like trying to talk and I, there was a documentary years and years ago um, about th- this one professional skateboarder that had passed away. And I remember they interviewed a bunch of his friends and it was like, it was hard to watch because in my head, I'm watching it going like, you're next. Like the people they're interviewing, they're like, yeah, man, he was just too much it's like yo you're clearly too much you gotta chill like (laughs) fuck bro like you're like this is i'm scared for you and i don't even fucking know who you are (laughs) like yeah no that's really sad man that's cool though that uh hbo put that out yeah it's a great documentary i recommend it even if let me think i was gonna say even if you're not a fan of the music you might like it but I don't know if that's true. An hour and a half of concert footage is going to be a little hard to swallow for someone that's not a fan. It's not all concert footage. It's just video of people hanging out and traveling to the shows and stuff for the first hour, hour and a half. Yeah, it's not just concert footage. But listen, check it out. It's good. And the guy's got a lot of good songs. Fast and Wishing Well are undeniable classics. Top notch shit. Yeah, wishing you know Tommy wishing well is my I think I've said this on the show but wishing well is my favorite song of any genre. Of all time like that's your like if someone said like you you have to pick your favorite song out of all the songs and you think wishing well is it. That's it. Fucking A man. I got to yeah. go back to it and listen to it again cuz I do I have it on playlists and I I hit it sometimes where I'm like oh, okay cool and I I'll let it play but there's a lot of times where I just skip it and I now I'm going to have to go back and really pay attention to it. Yeah. But fast, I mean, come on, that's that's you'll never skip that one. Never, and also that's like a that's like perfect song for the ending montage of a season of a show. And it, yeah, and it also has the best cover ever. It looks like a PS2 game that was never released. <laughs> well, and that's it for this segment. So now we're going to talk to Greg Thomas of End. Enjoy. folks we're here now with greg thomas greg welcome to the show hey hey keith thanks and tommy thank you for having me on here absolutely now greg the first question i usually ask everybody is how are you doing today and i know how you're doing today and we should talk about it tell the folks what's going on greg well um about two days ago three days ago i tested positive for covid um this is after doing the show's 
uh, that we just did and just did a string of shows. We did Tid the Season up in Buffalo with um, Every Time I Die. And we got back from that. A few of our guys got COVID, and I thought I had escaped it. I tested negative a couple times, and then on uh, Saturday, tested positive for it. So I'm in like day three or four of having COVID. So I feel like I feel very interesting right now. It's like a, it's like a cold, but a little bit of a brain fog, a little you know, a little congested, a little achy, stuff like that. So. Uh, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for having me on, and to the listeners, thank you for dealing with me if I am a little sluggish in my, uh, you know, in our discussions today. But I'm doing, I'm doing okay. It's it, it kind of comes and goes in waves. Um, yesterday I felt great. Today I feel a little worse. It's just kind of the way it is for a couple weeks till you get over it. Yeah. So we're in day two now of the virus. Have it has it gotten worse since Saturday? Yeah. So my. Um, Well, Friday was my worst day. So I actually had it hit me Friday. That's when all the symptoms came on. And then Saturday, I went and got tested at the clinic, tested positive. And I was like, okay. Then yesterday, Sunday, I was great. Today's Monday. I'm kind of back a little, back to what I was like Saturday, Friday night. So yeah, it's kind of of like day three, I guess. And um, not really improving too much yet, but hoping to soon. Did they give you any indication of how long it could last? I know it varies so wildly between different people. Well, one thing that was interesting, we have this new wave hitting right now that's a lot more aggressive than I think anybody was anticipating. When I went in and I got tested on Saturday, they called me with the results and they were like, hey, uh, you're also eligible for this like kind of antibody infusion treatment that they were offering. Um, and then they're like, we'll call you Monday and and schedule a time for you to come do that. And I was like, okay, sure. I didn't really know too much about it. And then, uh, they called today and they're like, actually we're fully maxed out of people. Now we're getting hit a lot harder than we were anticipating. So we are no longer able to offer that to you. And I was like, that's okay. I mean, I'm surviving with it. I'm sure there's people that are in much more need than I am of it. So, you know, I can't complain about that, but, uh, yeah, so the situation even in the last couple of days has changed drastically where they were offering services that they can't even do anymore. And it's starting to get to the point where like you're, you know, there's different types of tests. There's the PCR test. I took one right when I got home from the shows and that came back negative, but that took a couple of days to get the results. Now they're saying it's like a week to get the results. They're getting so many tests with the holiday season coming up and everything. So situation's changing very fast. Yeah, just this past Friday into Saturday, I could feel the wave of panic starting again. A lot of gigs were getting canceled. There was a gig I was supposed to go to in Manhattan Saturday. Everybody dropped off of that. Every show I saw on Instagram was getting canceled. It feels like it's starting all over again. Yeah. um, So, you know, we had done a couple shows uh, or a few things uh, since the pandemic. We did Furnace Fest, which Keith is where I met you. And, um, you know, we were able to come home from Furnace Fest. Nobody in our camp got it during that. And then doing this last string of shows last week, more than half the band, three out of the five guys have it right now. Uh, Every single band that I know that was doing shows last week or on tour last week actually got it, um, which is like 15 bands or something like that. So uh, the situation I think is a little different than it was. I think the new variant is a, a little more aggressive and a little more airborne. So 
you know, I think people should be aware of the risks going into playing shows or doing shows, you know, and it's, yeah, it's a little different. So even our protocols, which were, you know, helped us through Furnace Fest didn't work for Tid the Season and we weren't as lucky. So it is changing fast. And I do think that this new variant's kind of creeping up on people a lot quicker than we were anticipating. Kind of feels like we've had a few moments during the pandemic where it's like, oh, this is kind of dying down. Life is going to maybe come back to normal. And then it just keeps coming back, you know? It's like Jason Voorhees or something, you know? I think you got him, and then he's back at it. And then so. he's back. Yeah. Well, Greg, we wish you all the best. I feel like I'm ending the interview. Yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say you sounded like... Greg, we wish you all the best, and uh, good luck. No, I <laughs> thank you. you know? Listen, I just want to say thank you for doing this despite the circumstances, because we're very excited to talk to you. You know, we love End. We love a lot of the work that you're involved with, so... Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I just want to say real quick, too, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you, again, having me on during this, because I do think that people should talk about this and be aware. If people are going to go to shows and play shows, you know, I can't fault you for that, because obviously that's what we wanted to do. But people should be aware that the risks are maybe a little elevated right now. So just know the risks going in. Try to be as safe as you can and as smart as you can with it. And um, yeah. So I appreciate you having me on to even talk about that to start. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you are talking about it. And I'm half convinced not to go home for Christmas now because going and standing in Penn Station with a thousand people on Christmas Day waiting for a train sounds like probably the worst idea ever right now. So I've got a lot of thinking to do between now and Saturday. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough time with the holidays coming up. And like I said, this variant is seems to be a little more aggressive than, you know, what was happening before. But that's probably, you know, we don't have to talk about COVID the whole time. But I just want to say thank you for even mentioning it, discussing it, and making sure people know the risks and at least weigh those in their mind before they make the decisions to play or go see music. Right. Well, let's take it back a bit, Greg. Let's get to know you. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Burlington, Connecticut, which is where I still am. Uh, it's where the studio is. Um, I grew up here, yeah, most of my life. I did live in other places when I was younger. I lived for a brief period of time in Poughkeepsie, New York. I lived in Richmond, Virginia for a little bit and then ended up back in Burlington, Connecticut, which is center of the state. I know you had my studio co-owner Chris Teddy on recently. And I think we grew up in uh, similar circumstances. So center of Connecticut, which basically means, you know, we're going to New York City and Boston uh, for shows for a lot of our youth, you know, because it's, it's, it's only like a two hour drive to each of those places. So have you always been interested in music? Has it always been a passion of yours? Uh, yeah, I, my dad is a musician, actually. My dad is a jazz pianist and he was a, like a touring musician during my youth. Like he was doing shows and traveling all over playing, uh, jazz. And I gr basically grew up in like the clubs, like seeing him play. And it's funny as a kid, I actually hated music for a while because it was like the thing my dad was into. And I was like, music's lame. I I'm more into uh, comic books or movies or something like that. And then when I got older, I was like, actually, you know, this is kind of cool. And by the time I was like 11 or 12, I had, you know, been hooked already and, and was fully on board with it. So would you actually be out on tour with your dad as a child? So I never really toured with him because he, what he did was mostly like regional things, but I would go to shows with him a lot. 
And he would be doing, like, he did a lot of really, like, fun events. Like, I remember as a kid, he did an event with, like, Elvira, you know, and I remember seeing that. And I always liked, like, horror movies and spooky things. So I was like, oh, my dad's playing a show with Elvira. This is crazy. (laughs) So he would do stuff like that. Um, Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get, I didn't, like, hit the road with him. But I did spend a lot of time at clubs and a lot of time at shows as a kid. And, and like, in my baby, you know... Anytime he had to go do something, the babysitter that we would have would always be like bandmates of his that weren't going to the show. So like say one band is playing while the drummer of his other band is going to be the, my babysitter. So they'll be – I was just surrounded by music constantly when I was a kid. So it's in the family. It is in the family, yes. So how did you decide you wanted to start playing and where did you start? Eventually, you know, I, I guess the thing I started with was guitar, which is what I play now. And I just kind of gravitated towards the louder, noisier music that was going on at the time that I was growing up. So for me, that would be, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, like grunge and metal stuff. And um, it was very different than the jazz that my dad was playing. So it still kind of felt like I was being a little rebellious in a way. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm so punk. I'm going to listen to Nirvana that every single other person my age is also listening to. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I kind of gravitated towards rock stuff. I mean, I I definitely shared a lot of love for music that my dad was into as well. Like, he did get me into, like, Stevie Wonder at an early age was, like, really big for me. Um, He listened to a lot of, like, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And I did grow to appreciate that stuff a lot but when i wanted to find music for myself i went right to like the loudest noisiest thing i could find which when i was super young was like basically metallica you know and and, and nirvana and alice in chains and stuff like that was like my answer to what my dad was doing and um yeah i i asked him one year to you know he would always try to show me piano because he's a pianist and i didn't really it didn't really connect with me like i can play a little but I asked him for a guitar, and in one year, he, he got me a guitar, this, like, Suzuki guitar or something. It was like, you know, everybody's first guitar, I feel like, is an absolute no-name $50 guitar. And, uh, yeah, I just started learning Nirvana songs and Metallica songs. I feel like everybody that's around our age probably started similarly. I think you, you guys are both 39 as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we were just at the age where it was like, that was what you learned. I mean, and and Nirvana was a great gateway band because you could pretty much play Nirvana songs right upon holding a guitar for the first time. You know, they were like designed where they're like, not too challenging, but fun to play. And that's really where I I first uh, started to figure it out. Tell us about discovering the scene, discovering hardcore. What was your entry point for the underground music and what inspired you? So for me, um, really, I came in through metal because when I discovered Metallica, that was like the biggest thing for me. And pretty much I discovered hardcore punk through bands like Metallica and Slayer covering hardcore punk songs. So, you know, you had you had Metallica covering Misfits songs and you had Slayer covering Minor Threat songs and things like that. And that was really what set it up. So I was like, for whatever reason, I guess as an answer to what my dad was listening to, 
I always liked the stuff that was the fastest and the loudest. That was just what I was drawn to. And when I heard like, you know, like Slayer did their like cover record where they did like a couple, you know, um, like punk hardcore songs. And I was like, wow, these songs are fast the whole way through. That's awesome. What is this? And uh, the first thing that I got was a Minor Threat cassette tape. Really, I was like, okay, who wrote this song? And I went and found the cassette tape at my local record store. And, and I was blown away. I was like, holy shit. Every song is fast the whole way through. This is all I want. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like, this is everything. No ballads, you know, just let's go. So I, that was what I was drawn into. And, and Minor Threat was really probably like the, the big one for me. Um, it was that. And then it was also the kind of metal adjacent stuff. Like there was the era in the mid 90s where Roadrunner Records, which was like a massive you know, metal label doing a lot of death metal stuff where they were starting to put out like the nineties hardcore bands. So they, they put out like a vision of disorder record. They put out a mad ball record an earth crisis record. And I had gotten all those cause I was into metal. I was already getting roadrunner stuff. Um, I was really big into Sepultura and, uh, yeah, Sepultura was another huge one for me. And, um, yeah, so when they put out those records, I, I definitely bought that Vision of Disorder Green Drop record when that came out. And I was like, there's something different about this. You know, I, I was pretty young, so I didn't totally understand what the difference between hardcore and metal was. But I was like, wow, there's a lot of parts in these songs, and there's no guitar solos. And they're singing about stuff that isn't as, like, fantastical. So I, I was, like, really intrigued by it. And that kind of set me down the path of, like, discovering all that, you know getting into the more metallic side of hardcore in the mid-90s. And I really went crazy with that stuff. That was the stuff that fully defined, like when I was writing my first songs, I was just trying to sound like Earth Crisis and Vision of Disorder and stuff like that. And at the same time, I should say, you know, I mentioned being into Sepultura. Um, Sepultura had this sideband Nail Bomb. Do you guys remember that? At oh, all? Yeah, yeah. They were on Earache. Yeah. Yeah. Nail Bomb was really cool. And Nail Bomb, uh, on that record that they had, Point Blank, they covered a song from a band called Doom, which is like a crust band from the UK. And I, I heard that, and I found that in like some of the early stuff that I got into was crust punk stuff. Like, I really, I really gravitated to that. So... Doom was huge for me. And then, like, in the mid-90s, I was like, are there bands like this still doing it today? I discovered His Heroes Gone, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, and just went hard into that stuff. All, you know, Doom, Disrupt, State of Fear. So I was kind of into the, the D-beat, crust, grindy side of things and into, like, the metallic, hardcore side as well. And that's like really where I discovered the underground was just trying to seek out shows like that. And I actually somehow, you know, on one of my first shows, I, I ended up at this club that was close to me called The Pit in uh, Torrington, Connecticut. I was like 14 years old or 15 years old. And um, it was like a small DIY venue. They did like a lot of these DB kind of crusty shows and they had no sound guy. And it was like not really a sound, it was like a PA, but I was like, I'll do sound for you guys. I can plug one microphone into a PA and, and do sound. <laughs> and so I started doing sound at that place and I got, 
that really was like a massive thing for me because I did that for the venue was only around for like eight months or something like that. This is like 96, 97. And uh, I got to do sound for like Pig Destroyer, Jerome's Dream, uh, Page 99, all this shit. And it was fucking awesome. It was like really cool. You're telling me you walk into this place at 15 years old and you just say, I'll do sound and you don't even know how to do it? Yeah, absolutely. I was just, I saw, I saw, it was, it was basically like they were just, the bands were setting up and plugging in like the PA themselves. <laughs> and I was like, even at 15, I was like, I don't think it's supposed to be this way. <laughs> so I just tried to help out. And, uh, you know, my first bands, all, all my first bands were like kind of crusty, DB, grindy bands too. It's funny because like the, the very first shit I ever did sounds closer to end what I'm doing right now than like anything I did in between. <laughs> so I've gone like full circle on it. But uh, yeah, I, I played there and I was like, this place is so cool. And it's a total dive, you know, thinking back to it now, it's r- ridiculous. But I was like, this place is so cool. And I, and I basically just went and tried to help. I, I saw these guys trying to, they're setting up their guitar and they're trying to figure out the vocal mic. And I just tried to, you know, it was easy enough. I tried to figure it out and do it. And then they just had me back to do it. And that just basically meant I could go to the shows for free. Did you know how to do all that stuff? Or did you kind of figure it out as you were becoming the sound guy there? I, I kind of figured it out while I was doing it there. I mean, I had seen my dad. Basically, like, having seen my dad set up stuff, I, I kind of understood, like, what a mic cable was, like, what a speaker cable was. Um, so I had, like, a basic working knowledge of it. And trial by fire i just went in and it and it wasn't any worse than what it was already which isn't to say it's good (laughs) but i didn't make it worse and the guy that owned the place didn't have to think about it so that was that and then i started doing sound there and i did that for like i said i was probably 14 15 and that was a huge thing for me because i got to see all these like really underground bands you know like which was like almost like a culture shock for me, you know, thinking like, oh, I'm into like the underground stuff like Metallica. Then you're like, oh, shit, here's, you know, anal cunt, you know, or something. (laughs) You're like, okay, that's a little different. (laughs) (laughs) Real quick, Greg, did you ever get to see, uh, since you were into Grind and Crust, did you ever get to see Ass Suck live? No, I wish, I wish. That Misery Next record is so fucking sick. I, I I try to tell people all the time. They're all like, "Dude, Anti Capital is the best record." I'm like, "You're the that's the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard." I was like, I, I, "Misery." I honestly hear Misery Index. And I remember getting that record and going, "Damn, 15 minutes is long for a grind song." The whole record's 15 minutes. That's the whole yeah. fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dude. That yeah, I think that's one of the. I put that in my top tier of like grind records. I wish I got to see them. And I heard a lot of stories about them being awesome. Like, uh, I, I know that the one of the guys in that band was a recording engineer. Yeah, Steve down, Heritage. Yeah. Yeah, down in Florida. And he did, like, the first Shia Lude stuff. So I heard that he was awesome with that. But I unfortunately never got to see him. And I never got to see His Heroes Gone either. Saw a tragedy a bunch of times. But I, like, just missed. I could only see who came to that small little club because <laughs> I didn't I didn't have a license or anything. So if they came to Torrington, Connecticut, then I saw them. But if they didn't, it took me a couple years to start branching out. I love these stories when someone just seizes hold of an opportunity because I always say it, but I was like too scared to do anything. But you're just like, yeah, I'll do sound. Yeah, I, I was like, 
as a kid, I was a very shy kid myself. And then when I was in these like punk and hardcore environments, I don't know, I just felt a little more brazen. I don't know why. I was like super shy in school for most of my youth. And then I'd go to this other world that felt like lawless. There's just like people fighting and it's just crazy and you kind of do whatever. And I was just like, hell yeah, I guess I can do whatever. And that made me a little more confident to try things like that. But jumping in, not exactly knowing what I'm doing, that's a lot of that's been the MO of my career. I mean, that's kind of what I started with recording, like for doing the studio. When I, when I first sat down, like I basically got alone, bought Pro Tools, set it up. And when I first sat down at Pro Tools ever in my life, I already had a band here to record. So there was already a band waiting. And I'm like, guys, I got to figure this out. Let's give it a shot. So <laughs> I, I kind of just jump in and see what happens, you know? I think there was a thing actually on the episode that you did with Chris where you guys talked a little about like not having like a fallback plan. I think there's something about just recklessly going in and being like, it's do or die that really lights a fire under your ass to try to figure out something like that. So I've been lucky to somehow prolong that madness for however many years now. So you're playing in crust bands and D-beat bands and that type of thing, yes? Yep. So how long are you doing that before you decide you want to start recording? Uh, I started recording almost right away with that stuff. Um, it just wasn't at a professional level. Like I had a tape, a four-track tape cassette recorder that my dad actually had that he gave to me once I started playing music. And I was cutting demo tapes right away like my first band putrid waste we like recorded a 10 song you know 10 minute <laughs> uh demo tape and that was like one of my first recording experiences you know i had four tracks let's try to figure it out we can do uh drums on one bass on one guitar on the other and then vocals you know so i started doing it very very crude early on right away. So I'm like 15 and doing it. I didn't consider it like something that I like really wanted to do. It was just like, oh, I have this thing. I'm going to make a demo tape so we can reduplicate it and, you know, hand it out to people at shows. Yeah, it wasn't until like, I kind of basically was fidgeting with that for a number of years. And then once all my friends' bands started to be like a little more serious, they started going to other recording, you know, started going to recording studios and stuff like that. Uh, I would have them, you know, my friends would come back and they would be like, hey, check out this thing we did. It cost us thousands of dollars. And I would hear it and be like, this just doesn't sound great. This is like not much better than the four-track tape that we have. And and I start, you know, the the real thing that like really got me wanting to do recording was honestly just to record my friends so that they could sound a little better. I, I was so lucky being from where I'm at. There were so many good bands around here at that time. And I felt like, damn, somebody's just got to like capture this. That's what I felt like I really wanted to do. So it wasn't like a career so much as or at least at the start, wasn't really a career so much as like, hey, I've got some of the stuff. Let's try to figure this out. And so I would start doing demos. I eventually, I was going to school to not record. I was going to school dual majoring in mathematics and English. I was going to be like a teacher. And then uh, I was still kind of recording on the side. And then I was playing in a band at the time, uh, this band With Honor, and we got this chance to go on like our first tour 
And I had this moment where I was like, all right, do I go on tour and just completely drop out of school, you know, uh, or do I just quit the band and just focus on studies? So I went on tour, you know, I just <laughs> totally, totally left in the middle of a semester, like a dumbass in debt, you know, and went on tour. And when I came home from that, I was like, all right, how am I going to make ends meet now that I've done this? And I, you know, I, I had the support of my parents, which is like the, the biggest thing, I think, because they, they helped co-sign on the, the loan for me to get the studio started. So really, it's like them believing in me. You know, I think my dad was like biased to it because he's like, yeah, music's awesome. And my mom's like, yeah, you'll never have money ever, you know, like us, <laughs> pretty much. Um, if you're recording, you might have money. Yeah, there's at least some. Yeah, everybody that like makes music or makes money in music has some kind of side hustle thing. You know, they yeah. run a, run a label or do print T-shirts or do recording. So, um, but yeah, they helped take out a loan um, with me, and I I was just like, all right, I'm gonna just try to figure this out. I also really wanted to record. You know, I I had a band at that time. So this is early 2000s. So I was in with Honor only for a little period of time. And then I left that and I started a new band called The Risk Taken. And uh, the Risk we had recorded an EP. We went up to this studio in Massachusetts, recorded an EP. It was four songs. It cost me like $6,000 to record four songs. It was like every penny that I had ever saved in all the credit cards I could get to do it. And, and it was only like a week of recording, which... Sounds crazy, but I was like really fidgeting with stuff and doing all the layering and the stuff was like kind of technical for what it was. And we'd finished the record and I was like, damn, this is not sustainable. Like if I ever want to record an LP, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this myself. And like, so coupled with my friends recording records, I didn't think sounded that great. And me being like, recording records that didn't sound that great but just costing so much money back then because really studios back in the early 2000s you didn't really have like the home studio capability that people have now you can't just you you didn't have like pro tools on your laptop really you know you had to go to a facility right and um yeah the place that we recorded it was like 750 dollars a day or something like that and we were recording with like like the kind of intern there wasn't even like the main guy a little, you know, and it was that much money. And I was like, this just isn't a sustainable thing. So I figured it was somehow cheaper for me to open my own studio <laughs> than to, than to go anywhere else. And, uh, then I just kind of, I, I really just jumped in with like, not really any training or anything like that. I was just like, okay, I've seen it. Maybe I can learn it. And just kind of went for it. And and I'm super thankful for my parents. I realize I'm, like, really lucky that they, like, co-signed on that with me. And it took me years to pay that off. But still, you know, my credit was terrible because, yeah, I was on tour and stuff like that, you know. Were your parents pissed when you quit school to go on that With Honor tour? No, they were, they were like, they understood it because I was starting to get pulled in all these different directions. Like, they could see that the band was doing something. I mean... It was small, but it was something. And I think that they really just wanted me to be happy, you know. Um, I was like a pretty, you know, I, I was a pretty good kid. Like, I, I never really messed around with drugs or, or drank or anything. So they never really had, like, a lot of issue with me that way. I would just, like, 
disappear and play shows and then be back like next week. And they'd be like, where were you? And I'd be like, oh, I played in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania or something like that, you know? But for the most part, I wasn't like, I, I stayed clear of the stuff that they were really worried about. And when I made that kind of decision to do it, they, they really just supported me. They just wanted me to be happy, which is fucking awesome. Cause a lot of parents don't do that. Like, you know, we, we had mentioned a few times, Chris, like his parents, they, they really didn't want him to do music at all. Like he had to basically escape into the studio over here to do it. Um, and, and we had to have this like space for him to do it. And he wouldn't even tell his parents what he was up to, you know, like, oh, I'm just going over there to hang out or something. <laughs> but my parents were like, no, you got to do whatever, whatever makes you happy. So they really supported me and, and made all the difference in that. You know, I was like, 19 or 20 something like that i didn't know what the hell i was doing and they let me make the mistakes i needed to make to figure it out i think it's awesome that they supported you and i think it's awesome that you were that young and you knew what you had to do because i've never heard that before where a band records and they're like oh my god this is too expensive i have to figure out how to do this myself most bands it's like oh we just have to keep this machine going and going and hopefully we're going to hit eventually but you had the foresight to be like, hey, I, I, I'm hearing the stuff these guys are doing. It's not that much better than what I can do. I got to learn how to do this. Yeah, that that's really what it was. I just wanted to like, first and foremost, you know, for recording for me is I just want to write and play and make music. That's my favorite thing. And being like a producer really is just me getting to make music with my friends, you know, and it's like a job to do that. So beyond all the technical stuff, beyond any monetary incentive, you know, every time like the studio is like maybe going to make money, I always just give extra times to bands to try to make better records. I'm always focused on trying to make the best record possible and the best music possible. So I'm just like really fortunate to have been able to jump in and try to do that. I don't know. So how do you find the balance? Because in addition to the large collection of work you've done with Silver Bullet Studios, you know, there's also bands you've played in, Shy Halud, Misery Signals, Zombie Apocalypse, and of course now End. So you never lost that desire to be in bands as well. Yeah, it's always been my focus is try to do music um, to, or to try to play music myself as well. And I think... I think that's actually a really important thing that people don't touch upon when um, people ask me sometimes, like, oh, how do I get into recording? It's tough to say. My best advice is to to play in bands, give it your all, like put your all into bands. And if people seem to resonate with your band somewhat, then you have a better platform to approach people to try to record them too. Uh, so I think it's really important for both me and Chris that we're always playing and touring and not just being a producer guy because it lets us understand where the bands are coming from, what they're going through, what how the industry is changing. And we get to help advise and make suggestions that are like current and relevant as best as we can be. Um, but balancing them, it is tough. I mean, to do, to run a small business like this, you know, you're, it sounds like a vacation, but you're working all the time, you know, even when we were talking and trying to schedule this, you know, I appreciate you guys just being patient, but it was like three months ago that we started talking about scheduling you onto the show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We just, we just work all the time. Like it's, it's 80 to 90 hour work weeks, maybe a hundred hour work weeks. And all my friends that are producers, like, you know, one of my best friends, Will, who plays in end with me, Will Putney, amazing producer, also is the same. He, we're working around the clock. 
So you really have to uh, be prepared for that. But when you're when you're doing something like that and you're like doing bands and going on tour is almost like forced time off from the studio. So it's like very important. So when we schedule stuff, it's like, okay, we're going to go on tour. That's great. It's a month that I'm not going to look at Pro Tools. And that those are my days off. So my days off are playing shows pretty much. That actually sounds kind of awesome. It's it's pretty cool, but it's also uh, like if I didn't do bands, then I don't know, I'd go blind or deaf or something, <laughs> staring at the screen too much. Maybe you'd be a Twitch streamer. Maybe I would. I, that's a world I haven't gone into too much, but I know you guys have been dabbling in that a little, I think, right? Keith? A little I bit, mentioned- a little bit. Yeah, I, I actually burned myself out. I was thinking of you, Greg, because we were scheduling this thing and you're like, you know, it was like two months out. And you're like, this is my one day that I know I have off. And I was like, this guy has the busiest schedule I've ever seen. And I was doing a similar thing where I was just trying to work on something every day, but I've crashed and burned a little bit and I can't do it anymore. I I have to take time to recharge and uh, rejuvenate and all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's really important. And And as I get a little older, I realize that that's more and more important and taking a little time away be it playing shows with the band or something like that i always come back more energized making better calls for records and it's probably true of every craft if you do it there's a certain point a certain threshold where you do it too much where your work actually becomes a little worse and you got to find how far you can push it while still having the highest quality that you know you can create basically exactly so you're busy with the studio how do you decide when you're going to be involved with a band because you have so much going on. Is there is there certain things you look for? Do you just go with the vibe? Or if it's people you know, what what will sell you on joining a band? Yeah, it, it really depends on, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough, like having played in Shilud and Misery Signals, uh, those were like two of my favorite bands before joining them. So, you know, kind of getting the call to work with those. And, and actually with both of those bands, I had at least some kind of recording with them beforehand. So studio-related stuff tends to really kind of grease the wheels of that. And even being in End now is because of meeting Will in the studio. We were doing Miser Singles pre-production, and uh, it was for a record that I was producing, but I was like, you know what? I'd rather, I want to go somewhere else for pre-production just to get an outside opinion. You know, just to not be like writing guitar and lyrics and producing it like some just jackass, you know, like ruining the thing and not realizing it. <laughs> um, so, you know, we we sought out Will and went to his place and he was like up and coming at that point And we got along right away and we're like, yeah, we should do a band together someday. And that became end down the road. So I think it's just like, you know, for me doing music, most of it is just the people that I meet in my day to day through the studio or through playing shows and then just getting along well with them. And if it's a band I respect and love like Shilud and like Misery Signals and like where everybody else in end came from, uh, when I get the call, it's, you know, it's an easy, like, yes, I, of course I'm honored to be in any of those bands honored to have played alongside all those musicians, the people I look up to. That makes sense. So it's like a natural evolution of the people you encounter at the studio. Yeah, at the studio or through shows. Um, right. Really, because like, you know, going all the way back to the crusty grind bands, um, 
you know, I played a lot of those bands would play with shows with the uh, guys from With Honor, like where they came from. So when that got going and they needed a guitarist, it was like, oh, Greg's in these other bands. And then when I played in With Honor, you know, I met other people to, you know, form the Risk Taken and then went from there, you know, to to meeting the Shilud guys and then doing Zombie Apocalypse. Like it all it all was from just meeting them through shows and through studio stuff which is the organic, you know, I don't even know if things are done that way anymore with the social media and everything like that. It might just be like, oh, I follow you. You're cool. Want to do something. But for me, it's always been like the face-to-face, like, hey, we played the show together and it was great and you guys are awesome and you need a guitarist, I guess. Yeah, I'll do it. At what moment in running the studio, is there a moment you can think back to where you were like, hey, this thing could really work out, like a record you did or some type of experience you had? Well, when I, like I said, when I started it, I had a band here on the first day that I opened up. So somehow the studio has been crazy since day one. So I guess there's been like a need for some kind of recording in our area that we just came right into the right time and right place. And I think people wanted to record because it's like, oh, this guy was in, uh, in the risk taken and with honor and stuff like, Maybe we'll go record with him, you know? Um, so it was pretty busy right away, but I didn't... I was, like, definitely struggling to make ends meet. Even though it was busy, I was not charging a lot. A lot of bands weren't even paying back in the, you know, in the day because they'd be like, cool, yeah, we'll pay you some time. And, you know, <laughs> and it was just like, when you're starting a business, you're like, okay, cool, thank you. <laughs> and then... You know, like one of the first records I ever completed was this four-song EP. I'm just going to throw them under the bus. This band, Brothers in Arms, super small band from around here. But they, we finished the record, mastered it, they put it out. They just never paid for the record. And then those guys will message me like, it's been like 17 years or something like that. Oh They'll still message me uh, and be like, oh, yeah, we'll send that to you at some point. Like, Wait, you're telling you... me 17 years later, they still periodically message you and yes. say, all right, yeah. hold on a sec. Brothers <laughs> in Arms, if you're listening to this, it's time to pay. Come on. Yeah. Do the <laughs> right I mean, thing, I mean, for what goodness do, sake. Oh my. What are we doing? Come on. Yeah, it's it's wild. It was it was wild, right? Um so yeah, I I just so I struggled for a number of years, got in a lot of debt, somehow made it through all that. And um I think the real turning point for me in recording was uh honestly when when Chris came on board, you know, I started the studio in 2004 as my full-time job and Chris came in and like at 2010 2011 as like an intern and i had had a couple interns before him and i had a couple people that worked for me that were super talented that like you know would use the studio place and i would just kind of watch them because i was so self-taught i didn't really know so like there was this guy rob gill brilliant recording engineer live sound guy uh he would come and do projects here because we had like the, all the gear and everything. And I would just kind of watch him and be like, oh, this guy really knows what's going on. And he eventually left and did live sound for like Adele and does like massive things like that. So I kind of watched and did that, but I, I still didn't, I don't know. I needed like a, like a partner. I feel like when you have something that you can really bounce ideas off all the time, it just can make your work so much better. Same way it is with a band, you know, like we can all sit down and write songs ourselves, but when you like share 
the communal writing with at least like one other writer, something can happen that's like even beyond your expectation. Yeah, that's where the surprises happen. That's when you need like I can sit and write stuff and it's okay, but that that thing that happens when you get together with your bandmates and you just come up with a song out of nowhere and it's cool, that's where it's at. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that was taking Chris on. It was like a huge turning point for me because you know, I as soon as he came on board, he basically I was like touring. I had just joined Misery Signals and I was able to like leave him odds and ends to do and stuff like that. Like I, I knew the place was like taken care of. So let me take my performing music further, which is awesome. And I had somebody to like work on records with. And it was just a huge turning point. So like 2010, 2011 was really where it started to come together. And then still kind of fumbling along, you know, and then I would say now I'm definitely at my most comfortable and confident because I have Chris and then I also have Will in End, who, like I said, is just a brilliant producer himself. And I also bounce stuff back and forth with him and we do the End records. We work on them together. So with those two guys, it's just been like better than ever. But I would say that Chris Teddy, if you're listening to this, true turning point for my career and for silver bullet was having you on board. So, well, that's nice. Yeah. I, I had no idea you guys were roommates either on the episode or when we finished recording, Chris was like, yeah, uh, Greg Thomas is my roommate. I was like, we're having him on the show in a couple of weeks. Yeah. He's uh yeah. And we're like, our lives are so intertwined now because we, we run the studio together. So we split all the finances and make all the like decisions and everything. And we've been like, We've never had management. We've been talking about uh, getting management for the studio starting next year. And all our talks with like managers and stuff like that are basically like, it's both of us. You have to take us both on or we're not doing it. We're just in it together. So it really is a cool thing for sure. Yeah. And so we like live together, everything. Yeah. Because our finances are just split like, hey, you know, run running a recording studio it's expensive. If you're trying to keep up with this stuff and keep current, it's really expensive. You're like, I want to invest in this thing that's going to make a 0.05% difference in our sound. Cool. It costs $4,000. Awesome. <laughs> you know? So when you're, when you're doing those kind of things, having somebody to be like, all right, man, I'll split that with you. It's just like, fuck yes. It's so much better. Hey, Tommy, the, uh, the wonderful relationship that Greg and Chris have. Does that remind you of anybody that you know? No, I'm not really familiar with that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's super. I mean, it really is the same thing that we do on on a weekly basis here. But, you know, uh, I think the fact that you guys cohabitate at the same time. (laughs) Keith, what if I moved in? What's going on with that? Uh, That's not going to work for me. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite quotes, you always see it on meme sites. It's like Whoopi Goldberg on marriage. I don't want somebody in my house. <laughs> like, that's my favorite quote. And that's, I, I need a lot of alone time. I think the trick with me and Chris is that we work every waking second. So, you know, it doesn't yeah. make a difference. <laughs> You're probably not in each other's hair too much. Yeah, there's two separate studios, like, connected to the house pretty much. Because it's all the house and everything is all the studio. So, ah. um. So there's two separate studios. So like I could be in studio A or B and, and you know, he's in the other one. So even though we live together, we're working all the time and we only see each other when we need to ask questions. It's perfect. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good setup, actually. So let's talk about end. 
Now, this is an incredible band. I love everything you guys have done. Tell us how it all came together. So, yeah, I'm, and I am so thankful for and and being able to play with these guys. Like, um, as I mentioned earlier, I met Will through doing the Misery Singles pre-production back in 2013 for the Misery Singles album Absent Light that I was gearing up to produce. Went into his studio, me and the other guitarist, Ryan, we each like wrote a batch of songs for the record. We showed Will all the songs that we had written and Will basically listened to all the songs that I did and he's like, okay, these are great. They're good to go. And then we listened to Ryan's and he's like, okay, we should make some changes <laughs> to these. And I was like, I was like, all right. So Will's on the same page with my writing style and stuff. And I remember he just brought this up actually just a couple days ago before we both got COVID together. He brought this up. He's like, yeah, I wore to one of those dates that you guys were in the studio. I wore a turmoil shirt in and you were and and apparently I responded to him was like turmoil that band rules. That's great. I thought you listened to deathcore, whatever he was producing at the time, you know? And we kind of like got into the discussion of like nineties hardcore and like some of the D beat grindier stuff. And we were just like, wow, a lot of our music taste lines up. And he was like, we should do a band together someday. And I was like, yeah, that would be awesome. You know? And then I didn't talk to him for a couple of years, pretty much. And then he hits me up a few years later and is like, Hey, I got a singer for us to do that band. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we, we want to do it. Let's go. And he's like, yeah, I, we're going to have Brendan from Counterparts sing. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't totally know Counterparts too well. I, I thought that they were cool. They sounded like a Shia Lude, Miser Singles type of thing, which wasn't exactly the style band that we were talking about. We were talking about doing something that was like really aggressive. And yeah, he hit me up. And he's like, yeah, I got the singer. He's going to Brendan from Counterparts. I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, why don't you write some songs? I'll write some songs. We'll see how he sounds. You know, I'll try to put together like some kind of lineup or something like that. And basically I wrote songs on my own. He wrote songs on his own. Like our first record, the EP, is exactly half and half like Will song, a song from me, a Will song, song from me. We basically sent them to each other. And Will's like, yeah, I got the lineup. It's going to be this guy. I didn't, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know Jay Pepito. Um, I didn't know our first drummer, Andrew. And I was like, cool, man. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm done with Misery Signals now. You know, I, I left that. They had gone back to their original lineup. And I wasn't playing with anybody. And I was like, yeah, I'm down to give this a shot. I almost did a band similar. It's actually really funny. In the interim, the years that I didn't talk to Will... I almost started a band with my friend uh, Andy Hurley and and Chris Callahan that we sent demos back and forth, and then I ended up not being able to do that because I was too busy or whatever, and then that turned into Sect. They actually got that band Sect going. But there was a period where I was like almost involved in that, and I kind of had some of those songs still kicking around, and I tweaked them out a little, and then that became some of the blueprint of what I brought to the table with End. So there was like these very like narrow like misses that led to end starting. And then I just went in. I didn't know these guys, showed them the songs. I was like, do you guys like these? And they're like, yeah, this is awesome, you know? Uh, and it was cool. And as soon as I heard Brendan sing over them with like the voice that he uses for end, which is very different than counterparts, I was just like, holy shit. Yeah, this is exactly what I would be looking for. This is awesome. And I was surprised to find out he also listens to grind DBD stuff. 
And, and I just want to guess, it goes to show you, I think an important lesson in life in general is, you know, obviously don't judge a book by its cover. Just because somebody plays in a certain style band doesn't mean that's the only thing that they listen to, you know? So, and that's like a thing you just realize. So like, the, does the guy from Counterparts also listen to like insect warfare and shit like that? Yes, he actually <laughs> does, you know? And I think that's like a really important thing. And I, and I also think that the best musicians, in my opinion are the people that listen to a wide variety of things. You know, if you're playing heavy music and you're only listening to heavy music and only pulling from heavy music, you're really missing out on a lot, a lot of stuff and a lot of flavors that you could be adding in to make your band more unique. So all that said, I was pleasantly surprised to find that all the guys that Will had kind of put together into this lineup, he basically picked the people he thought was like, were like chill and would get along. He did a, he did a great job. End, as aggressive as End is, End is easily the most positive band I've ever been in. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. The, everybody gets along super well. There's no fighting. Everybody trusts the other musicians to just do what they're doing. Nobody's like, you know, controlling anybody else. Everybody has like the freedom to do what they want. And, and it's, there's such a good vibe and synergy to it. And it's crazy because we're trying to do the most violent, noisy stuff that we can. But in the most positive way that we can, which sounds ridiculous, but it, it seems to be working out so far. Yeah, absolutely. And you're in a position where everybody's pretty seasoned. Everybody knows a lot of high quality musicians. So you can piece this thing together. It's not just you're playing with whoever's around you, right? And then there's personality clashes and you're discovering like, oh, this person's an asshole or this person's trying to change everything. You know, the, the we all had the foresight to say like, hey, these people will probably get along together. And that's I mean, that's kind of what we did with this podcast, too. I didn't have anybody else in mind. I'm like, Tommy's the guy. That's it. Yeah, and that and that just takes, you know, kind of wisdom on your part and on Will's part, and you guys nailed it. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a really cool thing. It's a really fun project to be involved in. When we started it, we didn't know if anybody was going to really take it serious. Like, obviously, everybody's from different bands, but first of all, the term, like, supergroup, like socks, like that's just lame. So, <laughs> you know, we, we were like, we didn't want to ride on any of that or, or like think that, that we were entitled to anything. You know, we all work with enough small bands. I've all been in small bands long enough to know that you, that the world owes you nothing. So we just kind of went into it and we're just like, well, let's see if anybody cares about it. And I, and I do think one of the things that has helped us, usually when these quote unquote super groups are formed, I feel like guys get together for like a week or something. They jam in a room and that's it. And that's the record. And everybody's like too busy to really put time into it. So a lot of these groups come out and they're really undercooked. You know, it's like, oh, it's this guy from this band, and this band, and this band. And then you hear it and you're like, that sounds like some B-side just kind of thrown together bullshit that's super boring. And I think that's the case with a lot of these bands. But for uh, and people might think that about us too. So if you do, you know, respect. Well, let me say this: if anybody does think that, in my opinion, you are incorrect. It would be foolish to write off End as a merely a supergroup. There's a lot of care. There's a lot of thought that goes into this music. I've listened to it a lot, and I love it. I appreciate that. I mean, really, we went into it, and I think a big thing for me doing it, and Will was totally on board. Was like, if we're gonna do it. I want to spend time on the songs, you know, I want, I want to write them and, you know, find intricacies in them to highlight and change little things and the different flavors of each player and not just like rush it out. Like 
here it is. And here, you know, we're not just like every year, here's a record or whatever. We spend our time making the record, which is the whole reason I got into recording in the first place. It's because I wanted to spend the time to make the record, you know? Yeah. So thankfully everybody's down. We just like work at it and refine it and try to put in as much care as if it was our main band from the beginning. And now it kind of is most of our main band that we do. Having the discipline to do that is everything because I mean, I've never been in a really popular band, but I imagine you get to a point where you're like, ah, we can just go in and throw something together and people will like it. Like, oh yeah, this is great. This is great. What we did before is great. What we're doing now is great. No problem. But you guys actually took the time to really think about this stuff and really develop it. Yeah. I, you know, it's just, like I said, again, the world owes you nothing and you got to just give it your all. You just got to go in a hundred percent if you're trying to do something. And that's been me for my entire career, you know, trying as best I can. And thankfully we, you know, will put together a group of guys that wanted to do the same thing. So yeah, that, that's the mindset from day one. And, and as we, like we, like I said, we weren't sure if anybody was going to care about it. We weren't sure if we were going to really ever play shows. And now we're playing shows. We've got like a tour coming up in March. We didn't know if we were ever going to tour and we're going to tour like it, it, as it's like moving forward and people seem to like it, you know, or at least a few people like it. You know, we're like, okay, I guess we can do more stuff. And everything that we like make for the band just goes into funding the band to do more stuff pretty much. And it's been uh, really fun to see that grow. I read a quote about the band from you, which I really, Uh (laughs) (laughs) which I, I think summed up the band very succinctly. And I agree with you said, with the violence embedded in the DNA of the music itself, it's hard not to push the boundaries further and further live as we feed off of each other and the audience. And in the same article, you mentioned liking bands like Turmoil. Turmoil is one of my favorite hardcore bands. The process of is a all-time oh, classic for me. Seminal. Perfect record. Oh, just just absolutely a record anyone should be drawing from. You mentioned Converge, and these are my influences, and that's how I feel about the music as well. I want to feel a bit in danger when I'm seeing a band like End, you know? Like, I don't want to get crowd killed or beat up or put in the hospital, but I want to feel like I'm in a little bit of danger. Yeah, that's what this music, this music, like hardcore punk, it's funny being a record producer and saying this. It's great making records. I love it. Records are like my favorite testament to music in general, but this particular style of music thrives in the live environment. That's where it translates the best. We're not writing like, Beethoven chord progressions. We're writing violent, dissonant mosh parts, you know, and and aggressive blast beat sections. And so it thrives in the live environment. And the fact that we're able to play more and more is what we want. And as we get older, it hurts more. And we're trying to go harder (laughs) with it. (laughs) So I guess that quote holds up because we went into just these shows that we're doing like, we haven't really done a string of shows like this. We're going to feel like fucking shit. Let's go. You know, and we were, everybody's excited to do it regardless of, you know, obviously we got sick and everything. We're still ready to do the next show. So I would get COVID to play Tid this season personally. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's such a crazy thing. Cause it's like, you know, is it worth it with that kind of stuff? As long as people are smart, if you're going to go to a show like that and it's crazy, just get tested afterwards. Wait a couple. Don't don't just go home and kiss grandma the next day or something, you know? 
go to the show, enjoy yourself, know the risk, and then get yourself tested. But yeah, you know, was it worth it for me? I'll let you know in a week <laughs> if, <laughs> if I get over this. <laughs> so far, I would say it was, you know. That's a beautiful thing. So I did catch end at Furnace Fest, and I love that Brendan, the singer, he just, he downright berates the audience into uh, into action. It was a beautiful thing, because that's what I always imagine myself doing if I was a hardcore vocalist, you know, just saying to the audience, I want to see you fucking move right now. What are you doing? Like, just, just like demanding action from them. It was great. Yeah, he is such a character. It comes from like, he has such like an interesting sense of humor. Like he's got like a self-deprecating sense of humor, but it also has this like reckless abandon to it too, where it's like, okay, we're going to play a mosh part. Move you fucking idiots. You know, it's not that like, (laughs) it's not that we think we're cooler than literally any person on earth or that he does or that anybody in the audience is actually an idiot. It's just like, uh, all right, it's just fucking time to go. Let's go. Yeah, from an outsider it came off to me as these guys are just so into this and so am I. Let's let's fucking go. Absolutely. I remember seeing you guys. It was like the hottest point of the hottest day of the whole weekend at Furnace Fest when you were playing. You must have felt that on stage too, yes? So what I felt on stage was total nerves. <laughs> Basically, we're setting up to get ready to play. We haven't played. This is our first set since the pandemic. So since I was 15, I've been playing shows every month until the pandemic hits. So I haven't played in like a year and a half or something. And the way that the stage was set up and I'm plugging in my stuff, we're getting ready to go. The guitar amp is not working. Worst nightmare, especially if somebody likes to prepare, you know, I guess the, the speaker cable wasn't plugged in all the way or something, you know, so I'm like fidgeting and trying to figure that out. The whole audience is there and then all of a sudden, on my the way it was set up, on my side of the stage, that's where all the other bands would come and kind of watch if they're curious, you know? And End hasn't done too many shows. We've done like 20 shows, period, in the band's career now. So maybe, maybe 25. So a lot of people haven't had the chance to see us. So I'm fidgeting on my guitar like I'm a jackass. You know, I don't know how to set this thing up, trying to get it to work. <laughs> and, I, and I look over and I see like, oh, cool. Every time I die is here. That's great. Oh, there's 18 Visions. Like, oh, there's all my friends in With Honor. That's great. Oh, it's Scott Lee. That's And I'm looking over. I'm like, holy shit. There's all these people that I fucking look up to that are right on my side of the stage. They're watching me figure out how to plug in an amp for the first time. You know, so I'm... <laughs> so mostly, <laughs> mostly I'm just nervous. I, and I go over to Will. I'm like, the amp's not working, whatever. And Will's like... Good luck figuring it out. Also, you got the fun side of the stage today. <laughs> I was like, God damn it, I know. I think I literally have that nightmare once a week where I'm at a live gig of some sort and something's wrong and I can't figure it out or I'm being pushed on stage to play a set that I haven't learned yet or something like that. So you you lived that very nightmare. I'm living it out in front of my heroes just on the <laughs> side of the stage, you know? But as soon as it like clicked and it went in, as soon as the first note, you know, as soon as you got sound, it's just like, then everything switches and I don't even know what's happening. And it just, it just goes, you know? So as as soon as I'm over the nerves of setting up and it's working then, and then it's just go time and it felt fine. The the heat, I didn't feel at all or anything. I just was excited at that point, but the nerves up until it breaks into excitement, it can be pretty nerve wracking for sure. It's the worst. That's how I am. I'm incredibly nervous before i do anything 
And then once I'm doing it, I'm okay. But the nerves leading up to it are too much. But I, th- I think I found a way to circumvent it. Instead of worrying, I just say, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. You've done this a million times. Have fun. And then that seems to help. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's funny playing shows for like 25 years now or something like that. And I'll still feel nervous sometimes, but it does, it does dissipate as soon as it starts. And, and I try to tell myself it's going to be fine. Oh, the amp's not working. Oh, it's all ruined. It's over. Yeah. The positive well wishes, like they change fast when something goes wrong and you're like, ah, oh, it's all ruined. I ruined the whole thing. <laughs> working at the studio. You mentioned that in the beginning, bands wouldn't pay you or they would wait 17 years and still tell you they're going to pay you for some reason. What's your policy now? Do you make people pay up front? Did you get knocked around enough that you're just like, look, this is the way it is. Take it or leave it. I got plenty of people waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much now it's with the system I do and every recording engineer is different, but the system I do is you do a half up front, half at the end. And that just keeps you protected. You know, you kind of have to do that stuff, especially with musicians things times can change and i understand that too and i and i like work that's another thing that i do too that me and chris both do is we have our like standard rate but when bands come to us and they need things like we need this time we can't afford it or whatever we are always down to help the band out you know so if anybody's listening to this don't take advantage of our kindness because <laughs> you <laughs> probably can um but we we are we're you know we are very flexible with bands and stuff like that. But typically, yeah, I do it where they have to deposit it half up front, and then once they have like a draft of the mixer, we finish our tracking, and then they pay for the rest before I do revisions and things like that. And it just kind of it kind of protects it. And if somebody can't afford it or they need like a little bit of time, it gives us a little time in our schedule. We're like, okay, we're not going to work on that mix right away. We're going to just do something else. Will you work with anyone? And of course, I mean like outside of. People who have pulled heinous stuff or are generally unfavorable to be around. Will you work with any type of band or would you reject anybody because it's just not your thing or you, you feel it is not in your wheelhouse? Well, I yeah, we do get to select a little. Um, we do get more emails in than we're able to take on. So there's like a little bit of picking what we get to work with. My favorite thing to work with, actually, is I love to work with bands that are still like developing like our kind of younger bands are still finding their sound i love being on like the ground level and really trying to be like okay they have a lot of these basic things to learn let's go like i love i love having bands come in and then having them leave like a better stronger band afterwards that's like my favorite part of the job so if a band can come in and i can impart any wisdom on them or help like this this is how you tune your guitar which Sounds like it's easy, but it can be hard in the studio. I'm like, oh, look for this or this type of thing or whatever. And they take those and then they like leave the studio. And even if they don't come back to the studio, they go to other places, but they have like flourishing careers. That's my favorite thing about the studio. So what I look for, I just look for bands that are hungry, that know it takes work to make a record. You know, you can do a record really fast. You know, I have bands come in. I still do some like live tracking records and things like that that are pretty raw and quick. But I like when bands are just ready for whatever it's going to be. Like, okay, if it's going to take a week to do a song or it's going to take a couple days to do a whole record, whatever it is to make the best record possible, if they're ready for that, then I'm ready to work with them. So as long as they're like flexible and down, as long as our goals are the same, which is just, like I said, best record that we can possibly make together. We'll figure out a way to do it. 
the budget's small, the budget's big, whatever it is, we're going to figure out how to do it. That's the goal 100% of the time. So any bands that want to do that, style could be pretty much anything. There are some things I'd turn down if somebody's doing like, you know, more of like the gent sounding like program drums. I actually don't do a lot of program drum records. It's just not what my specialty is. I will suggest them to other producers that do a great job with that kind of stuff. We'll do a great job with that. But if you want to come in and put mics on guitar cabs and mics on drums and make a record, I'll take pretty much anything where the hunger and the drive is there. It could be acoustic folk. It could be crazy black metal, whatever it is. You know, as long as, like, like you said, as long as they're not like problematic, like if you're going to come in here and you're using like slurs or things like that, like, uh, okay, I'm not interested. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to participate in that. It just sounds like they have to be passionate. Like they're not you. They can't just come in and be like, ah, oh, whatever. Like you, you figure it out where we'll, kind of play this song exactly i just want passion and i just want people to meet me there and to just try to like i don't you know i want it to be a learning experience for them i also want it to be a learning experience for myself some of my favorite projects are the bands that come in that like challenge things that i do like and they're like oh what if we tried this instead and i'm like hmm what if we do try that instead i like that i like where we're both getting better at our craft and we're both um just trying to put out the best stuff we can One of the things when I was doing research for this, one of the first articles that came up was uh, a Forbes magazine article. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah. (laughs) How did that happen? And more importantly, why did that happen? Like that was, (laughs) that was, that was utterly ridiculous. So here we are doing like, you know, grindy, like in my mind, you know, when, when I'm trying to write an end song, I'm like, okay, how can I rip off his heroes gone in turmoil as much as possible and put it into this thing. And then Forbes covering it, which seems like the absolute opposite end of the spectrum. But I think I'm not sure the specifics of that I, I believe it was because there was just somebody working at Forbes that just listened to this style of music and they wanted to use the platform to highlight it a little. And I think that is cool. I think if people get the chance, you know, they're working for like a company and they're like, oh, I got these resources. Might as well use it for the hardcore punk community. You know, I think it's, you know, it makes sense sometimes to say no to it. If you're like, okay, this is fucked up. I don't want to be featured on like Amazon something or something like that, you know. But um, when, when it came to that, we were just like, sure, let's do it. That's happened in like hardcore punk like a few times where there's just like people end up like, you know, you guys have probably seen like whoever's running like the nhl instagram yes is like into hardcore punk because they keep shouting out random things and you're (laughs) like what you know and uh even i remember a few you know back in like 2012 maybe uh i did a tour that was sponsored by scion the car company oh yeah yeah there was like somebody high up at scion that just liked grind for some reason. And they like did this tour. It was this tour that was like black breath, the secret martyr Dodd, burning love, you know? And, and, and I was playing in this band enabler at the time, which is like a whole dramatic thing. Cause that, that was a band who one of the members was like canceled early on and people being like, Oh fuck this guy. And it happened after I was out of the band. So I, you know, I don't know too much about, 
those circumstances. But I was playing with them at the time, and and um, yeah, and we did this tour that was like sponsored by Scion. And you're like, what the hell does Scion cars have to do with like playing blast beats or whatever? But I, I was it, gonna, I remember that because I remember seeing one of the lineups for they they used to do like a Scion fest, and it was like Cannibal Corpse, Yob pelican uh hate eternal i was like wait the car company like wait, yeah it, exactly like, exactly <laughs> doesn't toyota own them like <laughs> yeah it, it, exactly so like what on earth does toyota have to do than that and what and what does forbes have to do with end releasing something but i think the connection came through will i think they had done like a profile on him as a producer and they were like yeah we want to do something else with you and, and it might have been like what about end and everybody's just like sure <laughs> have at it you know it's funny you sent me that article and you're like here there's a great forbes article about end and i didn't even think about it i was just like okay i'll read it but yeah that's that is that is funny utterly ridiculous yeah it's like the magazine that compiles like the 400 richest americans and it's like uh also here's this highly aggressive band let's go (laughs) yeah yeah exactly like oh yeah here's the most like profitable companies anyway here's a band of guys who are trying to make rent I, I do for remember, the month, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the, I remember reading at the end, though, the guy who wrote the article um, had something to do. He had like gone to Berkeley and was a contributing writer for Forbes. And he has something to do with, uh, he's like in a punk band in uh, New England. So um, maybe he has some connection to Will. Yeah, must like must that. be something yeah. like that. Well, if we are measuring riches in modern hardcore bands, I have to say End would be at the top of that list. <laughs> Did you like that little segue there? <laughs> that was nice. That was smooth. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, there is a tour coming up with End, Portrayal of Guilt, Yashira, and Wake. And it's kicking off Friday, March 4th at the iconic venue St. Vitus in Brooklyn. Now, we hope that COVID doesn't ravage the world and things get shut down again. We want this tour to happen. Yeah, that's what the hope is. I mean, we're going to... Now that we've like pretty much all had it and uh, we'll probably have our booster shots and everything by then, hopefully we'll be okay going in and hopefully everybody's like safe and we can do it. Definitely looking forward to that tour. That's the longest tour that we've ever done. Um, Hoping to play new material out then. We have little release in the pipeline that's not announced yet, but is, is coming out. So you know, hopefully new material. We're trying to put together the craziest set that we've ever done since we're headlining. We've never headlined. We've only supported uh, bands. So we're seeing if we can push everything further with the visuals and just trying to make like a violent, crazy set. So if anybody's listening to this, if you want to come to that Vitus show, that's going to be the first one. We'll see if it works or if we blow up our amps. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I will say this, that the nice part is, is, and I remember reading this, and this is from the CDC, after you have COVID, you have uh, natural immunity for roughly 90 days. So I think that'll carry me pretty close to this tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, we're just, we're in training right now for the tour, <laughs> you know. I like the use of sampling too in ends full length. I, I am a child of late 90s, early 2000s hardcore, so I I'm a big fan of sampling, and I, I do a little bit of it myself with uh, with the podcast. I also love it. I mean, it's so funny, like, growing up with the mid to late 90s hardcore stuff, sometimes you know the samples even more than uh, the song sometimes. You know, everything, think back to, like, 
biohazard punishment or something. You hear that sample come, I'm like, I know where this is going. I know this. I can't play the riff on guitar, but I can speak out every word of the sample or something, you know? <laughs> um, and yeah, the samples in the record, a lot of those were public domain uh, samples from different like sanitariums like it was like weird public domain stuff from like the government about researching mental illness from like the 50s that will found and then we used so kind of interesting to pull those weren't from movies or anything where normally would do but it was how we were able to do samples on a record which you hear less and less these days because you have things like you know spotify and stuff like that automatically checks and and youtube automatically checks their algorithms will check and if you use a sample they'll pull your thing or they won't upload it. So that's why you hear it less and less. So we had to go to like a source where we could pull from because we wanted to capture that dark late 90s feel. And we had to go to like weird public domain medical sites and deep dive into those, which is honestly pretty fucking dark and miserable to listen through. But we found the content that we wanted. And then that is exactly the kind of stuff that we're looking to incorporate on this upcoming tour is like, how can we push that further? How can we get those going live with us and interplay with them and have visuals that cue with that? Yeah. I mean, think about bands like Dillinger escape plan, all else failed. The room would be all black and you'd hear a sample and all of a sudden the music kicks in and strobe lights and everybody's going bonkers the, those were the best moments yeah that was my favorite stuff even my band that i mentioned the risk taken we used to we were never a, a big band but I, that was a really personal project for me for a number of years that i cared deeply about and um we used to have a thing which it just, i feel like this kind of stuff doesn't happen as much anymore but we would have a thing where when we were setting up to play we'd have a group of friends with us and they would plug in red floodlights throughout the room and then once we were getting ready to start, we'd have friends hit the lights and then all these red floodlights would go on throughout the entire room so there's no stage lights. And then we would cut into a sample and go into the set. So it just felt like you were pulled into like this violent hell experience. <laughs> you know, everybody's like, what the fuck is happening? And I live for those moments. I love that shit. I, I loved just seeing bands back then that were trying to do that, like bands like Code 7 would have like these weird like TV monitors that they'd play with. And like, uh, I remember like Boy Sets Fire would have samples and they're like, holy shit, they have the samples live. How is this possible? You know? And I just thought that stuff was so cool. So we're trying to go right back to that and recapture a kind of early 90s DIY visual thing we're trying to use projectors and stuff that's what we're trying to push the band so like you're saying or even that quote that you brought up we're trying to take like the violence of the music and making it even more unnerving so i mean hopefully people aren't just like puking or you know we <laughs> can't see what we're playing on stage but we're gonna try to push it for that tour yeah that sounds pretty exciting that's awesome i hope i get to catch it live and i think it's cool that everyone can take their influences and the things that they like and do something new and fresh and exciting with it, which is what you're doing with End. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So let's recap. Now, End is touring beginning March 4th at St. Vitus. So we want to go check that out. Yes. Yep. Yes. End has new music coming out. We don't know what it is, but we can't talk about it, right? Yes. Yeah. You, you can just mention we got stuff that we're working on and hoping to announce it early next year. Sounds excellent. And 
We're going to book ourselves at Silver Bullet Studios, right? But we have to be passionate about the music that we're making if Greg is going to get involved with us. Yes? Yep. That is, yeah, me and Chris, yeah. Yes. So you might work with Greg, you might work with Chris, but you've heard them both on our show now, and you're going to win either way. Appreciate it. Well, Greg, we want to thank you for speaking with us on the show, All Things Considered. You are in the thick of COVID right now, but you made time for us, and we appreciate that. And we appreciate all the music you're making and recording. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I think this is a great podcast. I love just the way that you guys talk together are just like old friends. And I think a few people have like commented on that. And it gives this such a cool conversational, like old friends catching up vibe. I think it's great. I've listened to a few episodes of your guys. I love yeah, I'll be following it on the future on out. So thank you for having me on. It's a really cool thing you got going on here. Thank you so much, Greg. That really means a lot, especially coming from you. Like when we hear positive feedback uh, about the show, and that's really what we try to convey is that, you know, this is Keith and I have been friends for 20 plus years and like just trying to share our love of hardcore and just music in general with other people. It's awesome. You guys are doing a great job. There you have it, folks. Greg Thomas. Very, very nice person. Very, very accomplished musician. That was a really great conversation. I loved hearing about the studio. I loved hearing about End. I'm really excited about what they have coming up, Tommy. The way he described the throwback to the 90s hardcore and the the lighting and the samples and the the live experience. I, I really hope I get to catch them. That sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, that definitely sounds like uh, kind of going back to that late 90s, early 2000s. Let's have a show and make a spectacle of it. So, yeah, I can't wait to see that. Yes. And Tommy, now tell the people why you're calling in to the last segment on the phone. <laughs> so what happened, we celebrate Christmas at my house with my daughters. And then we drive up to the Poconos immediately after that to celebrate with my in-laws. And so... In our haste of getting out of the house, I went in the shower, Kelly packed up the car. When she packed up the car, she forgot my backpack, but the backpack has my laptop, the microphone, and basically everything I need to be able to record is all sitting in the foyer of my house right now. Wait, so Tommy, you're blaming your wife for your mistake on Christmas of all days? Well, I'm blaming her for not putting it in. I'm also blaming myself for not double checking if it was something that i should have really just gone through everything and been like oh did you get that like because it is just a backpack and it's really easy to glance over she's when we were like got here yesterday i was like uh let me just go unpack everything right so it's like you know get all the presents out and everything like that and i didn't see it in here but for some reason just because it was christmas and we were all kind of like getting through like let's just get everything set up so the baby can you know open presents and take a nap it didn't dawn on me to even look for it yesterday. It was only this morning when I came out here and I was like, well, let me go get stuff prepped for today that my backpack is not in there. So I'm not blaming her as much as I'm blaming myself for not double checking. There you go. Now, I'm surprised it wasn't the first thing you packed. See, this shows that the show is not first in line in your mind. And I feel that it should be even ahead of your family. 
No, I'm just ki- I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a it was a oversight on my part, and it was really funny. Was when I got done recording with you the other night, I packed everything up. I put everything in. Like I was diligent about making sure, like all I had my cables, I had everything I need for charging, I had everything I needed for the mic. Like I double checked everything. I put it, you know, all in like the original cases, and like everything was packed up nice and neat. And it's just sitting in my fucking foyer at my house so yeah that's why i was surprised because you said i'm gonna pack everything tonight so i don't forget it and i was like yeah. wait, wait he circumvented this yeah I, I i put everything in the backpack that was supposed to go in the backpack it's just the backpack never got in the truck well so. listen this is the new scene and we uh we adapt we overcome we get things done you know we have various methods of technology now to record we can get it done tommy yeah and it's the nice part is next time we go to record i'll be back at home so this won't happen again so how is christmas going up there for you is everybody good it's really nice uh i mean today's kind of like the lazy day of like uh, you know packing everything up kind of making sure everything's sorted out because it was just chaos yesterday with you know there's three kids opening presents my wife's uh brother is he was he well he was here um, but, you know, it's just kind of like this is the calm after the craziness of yesterday. So just kind of hanging out, sorting everything out. I am excited about this. My in-law, my, my mother-in-law always gets me um, scratchy lottery tickets. Yes. And I haven't done those yet. So I'm going to I'm going to spend some good time. And there, there's like four or five of them. And they're like those big money ones that go like 10 bucks each. Right. Oh, yeah. So you have to like. You know, it's like bingo. You have to like scrape off the right things in the right order. You know, so I'm excited. I'm going to go do that in a little bit, and uh, that's about it. Eat some lunch, hang out. Girls are really excited. They got a lot of presents, so they're keeping themselves busy playing with the new stuff that they got. They got a chess set and everything. So, oh great, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, same thing here. I'm back home, relaxing, recording the show now with you. I visited my family yesterday. I saw my parents. And my brother, everybody's doing pretty good. Everybody got really nice gifts. Oh, and you know, one thing I forgot to mention, Tommy. Yeah. My brother has very good things to say about our show. Get out, really? What do you have to say? He listens now. I don't know if he listens to every episode, but he said the show is really good, that we're really good interviewers. And you know what? I take that as such a high compliment because I think family is the toughest critic of all. So I was very happy that he really digs the show. That's awesome. I'm really glad he likes it too because that is you're right though. Impressing someone in your family can be they can be some of the uh strongest critics because you know, they know you well. They have no problem holding back and letting you know what they really think. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it was good to see everybody. Today I'm just going to relax and well, I have off this whole week. So there's going to be a lot of streaming, there's going to be a lot of sitting around I'm going to try to just not do that much, you know? I think that's great. Yeah. You you literally have off this entire week? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't go back until January 3rd. I'm actually, they sent out a thing yesterday, not yesterday, two days ago, about potentially not returning in person, depending on the numbers of cases in Mercer County, because apparently they're extremely high right now. Oh, man. So we'll, we'll see how that goes but right now it kind of just looks like we're going to do our best to make sure kids get an education so exactly well that's about it for us folks 
our holidays are going great, and we hope yours are too. We hope everybody's happy. And before we conclude, just a few quick reminders. Follow us on everything. Facebook, The New Scene. YouTube, The New Scene. Instagram and Twitter, New Scene Pod. Twitch.tv slash New Scene. We need your support. We need more Apple Podcast reviews. Give us five stars and write a review. We'll read it on the air. Spotify, you can rate the episodes now. So rate every single episode five stars in your spare time. We love that. We need that. And of course, please support our sponsor, Iodine Recordings. Check them out at iodinerecords.com. Pick up some merch, pick up some records. Great bands, great stuff. Great as always. So Tommy, why don't you leave us with some inspiring holiday words? Um <laughs> uh- I always think about this now, this time of year. Uh, this is Kelly's first Christmas without her father. And, you know, uh, it's been really rough on everybody because you get constant reminders of things that he used to do or things that he would say or, you know, things like that. He would be in charge of and it's now someone else's responsibility. Like, oh, who's going to carve the turkey? Who's going to, you know, dad usually did that. So really make sure that when you're with your family, you're taking that time to express your gratitude for, you know, just them being there because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. And, uh, we know we sat so many Christmases in a row kind of just being like, all right, well, he's here. And we took it for granted. And I think right now Kelly's really, you know, starting to kind of learn what life is like without having your dad around. But if you guys still are lucky enough to have people in your life that are your family, just make sure you give them an extra hug and let them know that you really do love them. So I love that. That's great advice. And that's something I think about a lot now because my parents are getting older and I want to make the most out of the time. So thank you for that, Tommy. We're back next week with another brand new episode and another brand new guest. So that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. I've been living fast, 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 fast. Feeling really bad, 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 bad. Time really moves fast, 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 fast. But I hurry up and get in your bag, 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 bag. Already you're not a fat. I know why these niggas getting mad, mad, mad. My hand on my trigger, I'ma die for respect. Yeah, fucking with my money again. My favorite part. I've been through so much, I'm 19 years old, it's been months since I felt at home, but it's okay cause I'm rich, psych, I'm still sad as a bitch, right, I don't want nobody to think that I'm an asshole, I don't mean to be mean on purpose, I promise, my mama told me better than that, I'll be honest, blame it on this drugs and the life I'm involved in, I ain't see it coming, I ain't see it coming, but it's still came I'm talking about life ay. I've been living fast 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 feeling really bad 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 time really moves fast 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 but I hurry up and get in your bag 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 already you're not a fat I know all these niggas get mad man my hand on my trigger I'ma die for respect yeah fucking with my money you get dealt like that yeah